Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, January 21st, 2021. On today's episode, we are going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler and talking about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Swai Tranbui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, let's jump in to what we've been doing. Brad, what have you been up to recently? Um, well, you know, my girlfriend and I have been home working here uh, from the house since the beginning of the pandemic, and we finally uh, just got sick of our living room furniture arrangement. Um, it, it worked nice enough for a while, but we just wanted to rearrange things a little bit because uh, the way we had it situated was like... Our couches were sitting uh, essentially perpendicular to to the TV on either side. And so you always had to like, when you were sitting, like turn your body or your head a little bit to like really what to be. And so we wanted at least one of the couches to be actually facing uh, the TV for just to make it a little bit more conducive to our, our comfort. And so we finally did that, rearranged some things. And we, we obviously now we just wish we had it this way the entire time. It's, it's infinitely better. Um, this is a very boring update, but... Uh, I'm, I'm recommending that maybe if you've been stuck at home too, like I have, that maybe you do some furniture rearranging of your own if you haven't, because uh, it kind of makes things feel fresh, uh, mixes things up a bit, and will really just kind of reduce how mundane it's been, uh, especially if you're not used to working from home for this long. So if you want to rearrange your furniture, give it a shot. I think it'll help. Brad, has this inspired you to now like take a look at the entire rest of your house and go through like room by room and change things up, or are you just doing one tiny thing at a time? It was mostly just the living room because this is where we spend uh, a lot of our our time, you know, hanging out and everything. And so um, there's obviously some things that we probably need to like just still finalize or get arranged in one of the bed in one of, um, in our bedroom. There's one bedroom that's like for a while now has been like a catch-all room that just has a bunch of nonsense in it and really needs to be uh, overhauled and just like updated so that it's more like a, a guest room. But obviously we don't haven't had guests for, you know, a super <laughs> long time. So there's been no immediate urgency to do that. Um, but I think we'll be doing that just for our own sanity uh, some sometime soon. So it can just be a little bit neater and not such a mess. Gotcha. 
Uh, HC, let's go to you. What have you what have you been up to recently? I moderated my first panel. I moderated a panel with Vietnamese American screenwriters for the Song Collective, which is a New York-based uh, Vietnamese sort of charity organization. And um, uh, this was uh, this past Thursday, so I uh, was I moderated just a conversation with uh, writer. Irene Donahue, who is um, a writer for the Lifetime holiday movie, A Sugar and Spice Holiday, uh, Vicky Liu, who writes for Superstore, and Leon Lei, who is, wrote and directed the film Song Lang. And it was a really fun conversation. Uh, I will put a link in the show notes to the entire panel, which ran about an hour. Uh, and if you guys want to see me have a technical goof, like at the very end of the panel, where I accidentally exited out while I was giving away my, doing my closing wrap-up. Oh, no. <laughs> and then please check it out. But I think it was a really good conversation. And I'm really happy with how it went. Did you recover from that at the very end, Aishi? Were you able to <laughs> yeah, like, came jump back, back on, on and I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, how was that experience for you? That was your first panel, right? So, like, what uh, uh, did you learn anything that you'll take with you moving forward into, you know, future panels should you decide to be a part of any others? Yeah, I was really anxious going into this because I hadn't moderated a panel before and I had asked you guys for, if you had any tips. Um, and it was generally just, um, I, once I got into it, it was just a matter of guiding the conversation and having making sure the conversation flowed and people were able to have like good um, points and actual speaking time too. So that was a one thing that I had to sort of juggle, but it wasn't really difficult. Like once I sort of relax a little bit and was able to be like, okay, so this is what it was like. Because I've been on a couple panels before, um, but uh, having to control the conversation is a little bit of a different muscle. And uh, But it was good. And I, I'm happy that I think it went well. Awesome. Well, congrats on that. That sounds really cool. Um, and yes, we will definitely put that link in the show notes. So be sure to check that out if you're interested in watching it. Uh, let's go to what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading recently? I'm still catching up on comics, and I finished two that I've been running for a long time that wrapped up in the past year or so that I finally got around to uh, finishing. And those are uh, Black Science and East of West, two science fiction comics from Image that are both very different, uh, but both, I think, launched roughly around the same time. And I've been reading them for literally years and years. And you know how when you're waiting... When you, when you know something's approaching the end, whether it's a TV series or this, or a book series or a comic, you're just waiting for it to stick the landing. And I think it's why I put off finishing these because they're both these sprawling, ambitious, sometimes frustrating, uh, but always unique and interesting science fiction comics. And I put off for a long time because I, I thought for sure I would be disappointed. And they actually both end really well. Uh, Black Science is essentially about a group of scientists who... Uh, invent a machine that lets them travel through dimensions and it's really a long metaphor for being your own worst enemy and it ends up being this extremely wild dimension hopping action comic that's also about self-loathing <laughs> and uh, east of west is this alternate history western science fiction series about a uh, alternate united states or sorry, I mean united states split into the union the confederacy the the, the republic of texas a uh uh the, the nation of the Native Americans uh, and a, a colony created by freed slaves. And it's, and it's essentially this sort of blend of Western and like far-flung Blade Runner science fiction. And it's all set over, over the 
backdrop of the apocalypse where the literal biblical horsemen of the apocalypse are arriving to end this world and it's wild <laughs> it's yeah it sounds like it <laughs> um i know amazon bought the tv rights to this one a few years ago but i have no idea how they how you remotely make this new tv show without it costing literally every dollar available in amazon's pockets uh but yeah the, uh, i will say as much one of these comics ends with an extremely uplifting hopeful ending and one ends with the with an ending so dark and pessimistic that i literally kind of started shaking my hand started unwillingly shaking at the last panel because of what it, because what, because what it suggested about um, the message of the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, both are completely finished now. And they both run for 40-something issues each. And they're both terrific. That's the East of West and Black Science. Excellent. All right. Let's move into what we've been watching. Uh, and a very weird coincidence. You know, a lot of times we uh, will have instances on this podcast in this section where multiple people will have watched the same movie because it's a new thing that has come out. But in a weird coincidence, Chris and I both watched The Great Muppet Caper, the 1981 uh, movie that was directed by Jim Henson. So, uh, Chris, what made you uh, come to this movie and what did you think about it? Um, I think I said this on another podcast we did, but I've been watching the Muppet movies that are available on Disney Plus just as a nice, you know, distraction from the world because they're they're fun, harmless, entertaining movies. And uh, I watched, you know, the first one, the Muppet movie. And I also watched this, the great Muppet caper. And um, it's good. It's not my favorite. Uh, some of the, some of the songs in, in this one are really bad, especially when you compare them to the, the Muppet movie, which is just like wall to wall, really good songs. But overall, it's just a, a delightful movie where uh, Kermit and Fozzie are, identical twins for some reason and they're they they go to london and they they end up getting mixed up in this jewel heist miss piggy gets framed for it and charles groden is there it's just very silly and very entertaining and uh yeah i i had fun watching it man i loved this movie when i was a kid and uh my wife had never seen it so that's why i watched it and we actually watched it last night i just thought it was like the perfect you know after years of uh pent-up political garbage just like flowing through my body um this was like a really fun like you're just saying just a light fun movie to watch and just a, a complete like stress reliever kind of film and i loved it just as much if not more i think i actually more now than i did as a kid because there were so many jokes that i didn't understand um and uh man it, it's just <laughs> this movie is so so entertaining i love the jokes the the uh running joke about the the twins like you mentioned before and just the performances man like i, I barely knew who charles groden was at the, the first time i saw it i probably was like oh it's the guy from beethoven like the dad from that movie but i had no idea that diana rigg was lady holiday the uh the famous um designer at the center of the film who miss piggy like uh unwittingly impersonates at one point um so man it, just like knowing who diana rigg is and having a better understanding of her career now and just being able to look back at, at this work and just see how committed both she and charles groden were in this movie like they really um you know the, a lot of times even in the, like the newer muppet movies when people come in for when like human actors come in for cameos or or uh you know, even like supporting roles in those movies, sometimes it feels like they're a little out of place, but these two just like really throw themselves entirely into the role. And it just feels like totally believable that they're sharing space with these creatures who don't actually exist. Yeah, um, I think like the secret to making any Muppet movie work is the humans have to take it seriously or as seriously as they can. Like that's why the, 
the Muppet Christmas Carol is so good because Michael Caine isn't acting like he's acting with Muppets. He's acting like he's just in a legitimate adaptation of a Christmas Carol. And I really think that is the secret. Like they have to just act like they're acting with fellow actors. Not that they're mm-hmm. just like wink, wink. I'm in a movie with puppets. <laughs> yeah. And Charles Gruden, I mean, his character, don't get me wrong. His character is like completely over the top and like very, very ridiculous, but there is still like a little bit of a sense of, uh, of groundedness there. Like he is trying to seduce Miss Piggy at one point and, uh, you just buy it. You buy into the whole thing. So, um, I love this movie. I actually really like the music. I think there's maybe like one or two songs that didn't quite work for me, but I love like, uh, it's mostly of- pretty good, but there's, there's a song where they're like, they're driving and it's called like nightlife and it's like the yeah. worst yeah I've ever heard. it's so I, bad i like the music of it like the instrumental part but the lyrics i was like having dr teeth and the electric mayhem just like per, straight up perform a song where they're the ones who are doing the vocals is a mistake because yeah. uh, you just can't understand anything that they're saying and it's like it seemed all off key and really yeah that song struck me in a way that it never had before so are you gonna um, uh, are you gonna watch the others now you should really watch because i actually i watched this one first and then i went and watched the first movie the, the muppet movie and it's like, you know, as much as I liked Muppet Caper, it was like night and day. Like that first movie is just so friggin' good. It's just so charming and funny and and every song really works. I have Maybe a song spot for uh, Muppets Take Manhattan. That was the one that I grew up watching the most. Um, that, yeah. And I love that one. Is that one on Disney Plus as well? Yeah. The know? only one that's not on Disney Plus is Muppets Take Manhattan for some reason. I guess I don't know where it's not on there yet, but the other oh, ones okay. are on there. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, maybe I'll, uh, I'll have to go through and, and see what other, uh, I, I don't think I've seen Muppet Treasure Island maybe since like the theater or something. So I wonder if that one holds it's up the, at all. It's because... the 25th anniversary this year. And yes, oh, wow. It's very good. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, okay. So Jacob, let's go to you. What have you been watching? Uh, I'm still mostly watching Deadliest Catch. I'm on season four of <laughs> Deadliest Catch, watching from the very beginning. I'll, will they catch the crab? Will they all die? Who knows? It's been on for 16 seasons. They're doing something right. Uh, but in terms of movies, I got around to watching Gretel and Hansel, which is now streaming on Hulu. This is a film that came and went early last year. It's a new film from Oz Perkins, who made one film I love, The Black Coat's Daughter, and one film I kind of hate, <laughs> which is I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. And Grendel Hansel is a retelling of, you know, Hansel and Gretel, the old Grimm's fairy tale, uh, but does it in this very abstract, out-of-time, slow-burn, creepy, icky way. Uh, it's no Black Coat's Daughter, but I did like it quite a bit. Uh, clearly, uh, Oz Perkins is making movies that he wants to make using his voice, and even this is his wide release, and it was a box office bomb, and he's still making <laughs> things that are his voice. So, good on him, good on him for making things that are this wildly uncomfortable, even though it could have been packaged, you know, as a more mainstream horror movie. It's not in any way. Uh, I also watched Sunshine, which is also streaming on, on Hulu right now. It's sort of a, I don't want to say a forgotten Danny Boyle movie, but it's one that I don't think gets the respect it deserves. I mean, it was essentially the creative follow-up 28 Days Later. Uh, Alex Garland, before he became a director of, you know, Annihilation X Machina, wrote the script here. It stars Cillian Murphy. It stars... A pre-Captain America, Chris Evans, uh, Michelle Yao. It is a bunch of actors you really like. Like Everybody in this movie is somebody you like. And I know some people take issue with where it goes in the final act. It it takes a big swing in the the way it kind of switches genres up a little bit. Uh, But this is a movie about 
uh, a crew heading to reignite the sun, which is dying using a nuclear bomb the size of Manhattan. And there's a second crew to go because the first one mysteriously vanished en route to the sun. And it has sort of this sort of intense space horror or something like gravity, but also something else. There's, there's definitely a little bit of alien in there without saying too much. I need to know uh, what's the temperature on sunshine 13 years later, because I think the movie's really good and really underrated. And no one talks about it when talks about the larger Danny Boyle filmography. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember really liking it. And uh, the score especially is fantastic. Yeah, the yeah, score is, been... like in, is in so many trailers now. It's been a long time since I've seen it too. I think I have not revisited this since 2007. So I, I definitely, I'm due for a rewatch on that one. So I don't know if I could chime in. I do remember liking it, but that's a, it's a boring addition to this conversation. Anybody else here seen Sunshine more recently? Nobody. Hmm. All right. Well, Jacob, I guess you're out on an island on this one. But I, uh, I will say that one one character has maybe the my most nightmarish on screen movie death. Like uh, I can't imagine a, a worse way to die than one person dies in this movie. I won't say who because you haven't seen it, but uh, yeah, if you like Danny Boyle, you like how he manages to sort of float between genres and do new things and make it look easy. Uh, Sunshine's real good. Cool. All right. So back to me. I watched uh, Pretend It's a City, which is a show that uh, I think Chris recommended recently. It is the seven-part documentary series directed by Martin Scorsese that is on Netflix right now. It is basically just a showcase for the friendship between Scorsese and uh, Fran Leibowitz, who is a a humorist and author and comedian type figure. Um, I was a little mixed on this. I feel like uh, she can be a little much. Uh, the humor was a little hit or miss, especially in that first episode. It's like so many observations about New York that seem decades old at this point, but Scorsese's uh, constant guffawing at every single joke she makes um, is like almost entertaining enough to, to keep me, or it was entertaining enough to keep me through, uh, to get me through that first episode. And I think it gets a little bit easier to swallow, uh, in the uh, subsequent episodes, which all sort of take on, uh, ostensibly take on a singular topic. Um, but really the, the conversation is pretty free, free flowing and she touches on a ton of different things. It's very like observational humor. And, um, I think there was just enough, like, you know, good sort of laugh out loud stuff, um, like sprinkled throughout the whole series that it, it made it feel worth watching to me, but I can definitely see how, um, people might, uh, you know, tune into this and just be like, uh, this is not for me. So that that's fine. Um, Chris, I know you were like endlessly amused by Scorsese's amusement at, uh, Leibowitz, but did you, did you ever think at, at a point that there were, that it, that was like going a little over the top for him, for him? Like, it seemed like he was like, just, um, I don't know, like falling out of his chair laughing almost at some of these like pretty uh, asinine observations, I thought. I don't know. I feel like everyone who is like slightly funny, even like a tiny bit funny, has that one friend who finds them like insanely hilarious. So I I feel like that's just the relationship between these two where he's just tickled by everything she says and it's hard not to uh, be enchanted by that. At least that's how I felt. Yeah. So that's Pretend It's a City. It is on Netflix right now. I also watched a film called Thief for the first time. This is uh, uh, Michael Mann's feature directorial debut. Um, This stars James Caan as a jewel thief who uh, teams up with uh, Jim Belushi 
and basically uh, gets like roped into a sort of mafia scenario in Chicago and has to perform uh, elaborate uh, jewel heists. And he has this whole uh, relationship with this woman and he's trying to like get out of the game, but he gets sucked back in for one big last job kind of deal. Um, this movie is, uh, it's pretty good. It, it's, I think Khan is, um, is very good in it. And it definitely is uh, sort of like a, a statement piece for Michael Mann as a filmmaker. It, it sort of like is a statement of intent. It, it announces that like everything that he's interested in, in movies. Um, and uh, I think the uh, blank check podcast, which is very good. And y'all should listen to it. If you like the show and other movie related podcasts, uh, I highly recommend listening to that show, but they talk about um, this idea of like uh, the Rosetta stone for certain filmmakers. And this sort of seems like, the Rosetta Stone movie for Michael Mann, where it just like lays out all of his interests and and the the themes and and sort of um, uh, ideas that he will explore throughout the rest of his career um, in a really like condensed uh, sort of consolidated package. So um, it's a very stylish movie. The score is great. Uh, Tangerine Dream did the score, and it's this like sort of electronic synth based kind of thing that um, that inspired a lot of the vaporwave and and uh you know synthwave music that is uh, uh sort of on the rise right now um yeah thief i don't know has anybody here seen thief recently not recently but i love i love thief it's 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 great i love thief a lot i mean i like most michael mann movies really but this one is so it's so like cool it's very cool it's a mm-hmm. cool movie and it may, <laughs> just makes you want to like sit in like all night diners and yeah. smoke cigarettes and wear cool clothes and stuff like that. So it's a, but it's a, you know, it's, it's not just like style too. There's actual substance there. And I, I, I love it. Yeah. And I think the, the one thing that, um, that I was kind of, well, there's one stuff, there's, there's some stuff at the end that I won't give away that I was really like taken by that. I didn't really, I, I don't think I've seen, uh, really performed that way or done that way in other movies, but the, in terms of the, uh, the actual heist, there's like one big, um, heist that takes place in LA that's sort of like the climactic one uh, relatively late in the movie and um, the way that that is uh, executed and filmed I mean you can tell that Michael Mann had like actual uh, jewel thieves and and uh, criminals consulting on this movie because I've never seen a heist sequence like that where they like bring in all of this equipment and it is just um, there's fire everywhere and they're just like burning straight through this huge steel vault and they like I don't know exactly how they film this, but it looked to me like they actually did it. It's very tactile. And, and, you know, a lot of times in uh, heist movies, you'll get the scene where like somebody's putting their ear up against a machine and like, you know, clicking the dial, looking for like the, the code or whatever. This is not that this is like, you know, they, they clear out the building and basically just bring in all this huge heavy equipment and just like get to work operating on this door. Um, and there are just flames and sparks and everything to the point where it, it seems like legitimately dangerous, not only for the characters to be doing it, but for the filmmaker team and the actors and the stunt people to actually be performing this stuff before your very eyes. So uh, I was sort of taken with uh, that, that tactile nature of, um, of the, the big heist sequence in Thief. So uh, that movie is streaming on HBO Max if you want to check that out. 
I also watched a documentary called Some Kind of Heaven, which came out last year. I think it played at Sundance last year. Chris, you didn't see this when we were at Sundance last year, did you? No, unless I did. I completely forgot. So Some Kind of Heaven is directed by Lance Oppenheim, and it is a movie about, uh, it's a documentary about the villages, which is this huge community in Florida that has like 100,000 plus people in it. And it's like the, it's referred to as the Disneyland for retirees, basically. There are tons and tons of clubs and uh, groups that you can join to participate in any kind of activity that you want to, um, you know, any sort of sport or, uh, yeah, club. There's a, a one really amusing moment in the movie. Uh, the camera circles around this table inside of a conference room and a bunch of women all introduce themselves as Elaine. And they're like, hi, I'm Elaine. I'm Elaine. I'm Elaine. We're all Elaine. And it's just like these old women who basically are in an Elaine club because they share the same first name and no other, seemingly no other reason. Um, So this documentary just follows uh, several people who live in this community, which is just this supposed to be this sort of like heaven sent kind of place where people go to sort of uh, not just like end the, you know, live out the rest of their lives, but like the, the idea is that they're supposed to be, you know, thriving uh, in the later years of their lives and, and having all these resources and, and um, you know, just basically living in, you know, uh, this huge sort of isolated community that, that is uh, gives them a ton to do at all times. And and it's the opposite of, you know, the sad existence that sometimes you think about when you think about very, very old people at the end of their life. Uh, I thought this movie was like, okay. I think a lot of, I'd seen a lot of praise for it. Um, I paid to rent this on Amazon and I rarely do that. Um, but I had seen so much praise for this movie that I was like, okay, well, a, a ton of people that I respect are, are talking about this and saying that it's really great. And I think that like sort of built up my expectations a little bit too high um, because I just thought this movie was okay. And maybe it's just because the film follows, you know, uh, let's call it five or six different characters throughout. And instead of really focusing on um, all of these kind of crazy things that they could be doing with their time, it, it's a lot of, uh, it's, it's a little bit more sad than, the sort of happy-go-lucky uh, picture of this this uh, community would would uh, indicate. It's it's a little bit more about how these people are actually kind of miserable in this this environment. And um, there's one guy who's like this sort of huckster kind of character who's like basically just trying to you know he's like an old guy who's lived his life really hard and and uh, seems to be a criminal of some kind, like openly admits this on camera and is just like living out of a van and driving around the villages, looking for a woman, any woman, it doesn't matter to him who, who will basically like take him in and let him like stop living on the street and just like, uh, leech off of her for the rest of his life, basically. Um, so, you know, a lot of the characters I found to be, uh, a little repulsive and <laughs> there's this one married couple and I just felt bad for the wife the whole time because her husband uh, is, has, has like uh, had this huge shift in personality since they've got married and moved to the villages. And now he's into like taking drugs and just like, you know, doing 
naked Tai Chi on the golf courses and, and getting in trouble with the law all the time. And these people are certainly like char- capital C characters and they're like interesting to watch, but they're not exactly the kind of people that I w- would like to spend time with, uh, even in documentary form. So um, I don't know, maybe the the disconnect in terms of like the, the huge critical raves that I was seeing for this movie and my own reaction to it is just a, a difference of opinion in terms of like how you know, like the, the threshold that you can take, uh, in terms of like listening to these people's stories. Um, but it's an entertaining documentary. I just, it wasn't like, uh, mind blowing to me as it was clearly for, um, for several other folks. So that film is called some kind of heaven. If you're interested, uh, I believe it's available for uh, rental on VOD right now. Uh, has anybody else here seen this movie or, or heard of it by any chance? I thought okay. you were talking about the Reese Witherspoon, some kind of heaven. And I was like, oh, I know that movie. So <laughs> I've, I've not heard of this documentary. No. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Uh, I think, that, I think that's right. actually called Just Like Heaven. Oh, just kidding. I ah. even got that Reese Witherspoon movie wrong. Anyway, it's, it's, it starts Reese Witherspoon and Mark Ruffalo. Oh, oh yeah. I have heard of that, but I've never seen it. Uh, do you? Are, are you fond of that movie, HT? Do you know that one? Yeah, I watched it like a couple times when I was a kid and I really liked it. I haven't seen it since, but... I don't know if it'll hold up, but okay. anyways, right. tangent aside. Yes. All right. So the last thing I watched was uh, I, for some reason, I, I don't know how this happened, but I had never seen the Royal Tenenbaums before. Um, so I finally got around to watching uh, Wes Anderson's 2001 movie, uh, Royal Tenenbaums, which is streaming on Amazon Prime Video right now. Great cast. Gene Hackman leads the cast. Uh, Angelica Houston, um, Gwyneth Paltrow, Ben Stiller, Luke, Luke and Owen Wilson, uh, Danny Glover. Um I this is not one of my favorite uh, Wes Anderson movies. I know that this is like very, very high up there for a lot of people. And this movie was like very, you know, acclaimed in terms of awards and and nominations and all that kind of stuff. I'm much more, um, I don't know, uh, personally drawn to films like The Grand Budapest Hotel and and more of, uh, I don't know, I I like I like uh, Bottle Rocket and um, and Rushmore. And then this movie came right after that. And I think for a lot of people, it was seen as sort of like a a, a continuation of that upward trend. And to me, this one seems like it dropped off a little bit. And I don't know exactly what I, I don't know, maybe it's just, it's not quite as, um, as whimsical as some of uh, Wes Anderson's other movies. I think um, my wife who watched it with me said that it, it seemed like a real story with some quirks instead of a quirky story with some real stuff in it. And and I thought that was a good um, way to sort of uh, distinguish how this movie stands out in Wes Anderson's filmography. Um, and probably also why a lot of people really love it. But I guess just, I, I was not uh, expecting it to be um, as dark as it is. Like there's a, a uh, an attempted suicide, suicide sequence in this that really like caught me off guard and, um, just does not feel of a piece with the rest of uh, what Wes Anderson has done as a filmmaker in my eyes. Anyway, um, I'm realized now I'm opening myself up to a ton of criticism and I actually actively look forward to hearing you guys rebut all of these statements. So I'm sure we have some Royal Tenenbaums lovers on this episode. Anyone please feel free to jump in and tell me why I'm wrong here. What this presupposes uh, is maybe you're wrong. <laughs> I did love that. I mean, there are, there are there are moments. Don't get me wrong. I don't like not like this movie, but there are, I just don't like it as much as Wes Anderson's uh, as the rest of his stuff. So honestly, um, until Grand Budapest Hotel came out, I would say 
this is Wes Anderson's best movie. So you you are wrong, Ben. Okay. Yeah, I, I right. actually I actually prefer this version of Wes Anderson as opposed to what he's been doing more so because I I actually liked him being a little bit more dark and dreary as opposed to being much more whimsical. Not that I don't appreciate some of his more whimsical stuff because you know I love Fantastic Mr. Fox and, and Moonrise Kingdom, but yeah, Royal Tenenbaums is easily my favorite Wes Anderson movie, and just I mean the performances alone in it are great. I just love its you know the dry humor and it's just it's a gorgeous movie. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I, I mean, I'm sorry, Ben, but you were wrong. <laughs> I am very, uh, open to this kind of, like, as I was watching it, it kind of seemed to me like, this is probably a movie that's going to take me a couple times if I am going to come around on this to really, uh, really appreciate it. I don't know something about that first experience. And, and again, it could have just been, you know, expectations built up over, you know, it's, this movie is 20 years old now. And, and, um, I've been hearing like such great things about it for that entire stretch, um, that maybe like no movie could have possibly lived up to the, that, uh, you know, <laughs> examples that was in, in my mind. But um, yeah, so anyway, it, it's a great New York movie and there are tons of, of really funny jokes and some great phys- uh, physicality. There's this moment when um, when Danny Glover and Angelica Houston are walking uh, outside at like an archaeological dig site and he just, Danny Glover's character just like falls in an open hole. Um, I love that the... <laughs> the physicality of that performance um so yeah and and hackman is just uh he's he's very very good in this movie and it made me miss him a lot as a performer because he hasn't been in anything since what welcome to mooseport in 2004 or something like that um so uh i, I know that you know there are, he'll occasionally pop up you know on on twitter or something where people will be like ah uh gene hackman's like riding his bike around some small town American city or something like he's, you know, in his nineties, just like living his best life now. But, um, man, I just, I miss it when Gene Hackman could come out and just like throw a hundred miles an hour at the screen and just like, you know, light up a performance. So, uh, I just that is, and say, uh, oh, yes. this is also one of my top, if not my favorite Wes Anderson movie. And I love that dark whimsy, uh, dark storybook quality to it. So just want to chime in about that, but continue. All right. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's it for me. Um, uh, Royal Tenenbaums is streaming on Amazon right now. Brad, what have you been watching? Um, I've just, I'm kind of taking a break of watching stuff recently, but I did um, take the time to watch Belushi, which is a documentary available on Showtime directed by R.J. Cutler. And uh, there's a lot of documentaries uh, out there about, you know, big pop culture figures, really, really any figure of importance, um, regardless of, of what field. Uh, and they usually have a fairly basic formula full of talking heads chronicling their their life um, and using, you know, various elements to tell that story in a way that isn't uh, just, you know, a, a boring session of, of talking about why this person is famous. Um, and I was ha- really happy to see that Belushi uh, steps up and does something really interesting with what is usually a very formulaic uh, approach to these kinds of documentaries, because while it does touch upon the milestones of John Belushi's quick rise to fame, uh, you know, all the things that he's famous for from Saturday Night Live to Animal House and Blues Brothers. Uh, it does so with a presentation that is much more intimate and personal uh, than many other documentaries have. And it's because uh, the entire story of his life is um, brought and presented through previously unheard audio interviews that are conducted with everyone from uh, his his cousins, uh, fr- personal friends and family members to people like Dan Aykroyd and Ivan Reitman uh, and people he worked with at National Lampoon and, and Saturday Night Live and all these different places. And it, um, 
what really adds to it as well, and it's really the heart of this documentary, is there are um, a series of letters written from John Belushi to his um, high school sweetheart and his wife and eventually ex-wife, uh, Judy Belushi, that he wrote from when he they were young and, and at a distance. Uh, so there's like some of them are love letters, but some of them are also these uh, you know, just sad and tragic letters that show how self-aware Belushi was of his own demons and the problems he had and certain insecurities and um, just all the, all the things that were rattling around in his head that, you know, made him this, not only this epic force of nature on screen and in comedy, but also somebody who just had a lot more that they were dealing with, um, you know, inside their mind, which, you know, led to his substance abuse that ultimately ended up killing him. And it's just, it's so intimate. And um, because these letters are just, they're, they're heart-wrenching. And you can just tell that he was dealing with so much that, you know, some of his closest friends obviously knew about, but there was just not much more that they could do beyond what they did try, you know, from like keeping him on the straight and narrow or just, and, you know, just like being able to spend time with him and all that. He, there was clearly something that Belushi just couldn't shake. Um, Bill Hader was, uh, is actually the one who reads Belushi's letters as Belushi. You know, he's, he's not really putting on a performance as Belushi necessarily, but uh, the way he reads them makes them so much more touching, especially as they start to get a little bit more darker and sad. Uh, and then it's also, there's um, these really cool interludes that are animated uh, and they're animated by Robert Valley, who was an animator and a director on um, the Disney XD series, Tron uprising. And that show has a very uh, unique visual style. And he basically brought that kind of animation uh, into th this movie um, to show different aspects of Belushi's life that they didn't have, you know, like home video footage of. Uh, and there's there's so many cool pieces of archive uh, footage from that came from Belushi's family, from um, from his wife, from all the different projects that he worked on, tons of photos of him, you know, just with his friends. It's just all very candid and beautiful and, and intimate. And I really like seeing, you know, a different side to the story that we all know about John Belushi. It just, it just made it that much more of not, not just a Hollywood story, but, you know, like sometimes I think we forget that uh, a lot of these, you know, these, these, these people are performers and they entertain us, but they, they deal with a lot as people too. And Belushi is one of the most tragic stories. And uh, it's just, was a really a great documentary to, uh, to check it out. So it's on uh, Showtime. Brad, I have to ask, have you ever seen the film Wired? I have not. Okay, so Wired is a film that came out. Let me see what it came out. Uh, all right, 1989. And it's a, it's, it's a John Belushi biopic, and it stars Michael Chiklis as John Belushi. And it is fucking insane. So the movie opens with John Belushi waking up in the morgue after he dies. And he runs outside, and he hails a cab. And the cab driver is his guardian angel who drives him around and shows him various points of his life. And it's oh my so, God. it's so bad. And Bob, Wood, <laughs> Bob Woodward of Woodward and Bernstein is a character in the movie because he wrote the book. The movie is based on. And even though he doesn't put himself in the book, the movie makes him a character like investigating John Belushi's death. And then at the end, John Belushi's ghost meets Bob Woodward is the most insane <laughs> movie Okay, ever. I, have, I have to sneak this out. This sounds ridiculous. <laughs> it's really bad and really weird, and it's just, it's just the most bizarre movie like you could possibly think. Like, let's make a John Belushi biopic. What should it be about? I know, his ghost runs around, and it's just, it's so <laughs> weird. 
Yeah, I'm gonna have to see if this is available somewhere for me to watch. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, Brad, what else have you been watching? Uh, I also um, rewatched Catch Me If You Can recently because uh, it's I have this movie, you know, to watch whenever I want to, but it popped up on Netflix, and so I saw it and I just felt compelled to to put it on and. Uh, man, this is one of my favorite Spielberg movies, um, and I feel I feel like it doesn't completely get like the love it deserves. I I know plenty of people really do like it, but I, I think this movie is, is spectacular in in so many ways. Uh, you know, it has this incredible score by John Williams. Uh, the performances in it from DiCaprio and Tom Hanks and Christopher Walken are are all incredible, and I just I, I love how much it taps into. Um, it's it's one of Spielberg's best stories of you know having sort of an estranged father figure and you know really like reaching to like have that feeling of having the family that you want and this, you know, this idealized storybook version of, it. and he's done this so many, so many times, you know, uh, it's, it's one of Spielberg's, uh, you know, biggest, biggest themes that he carries throughout a lot of his movies, um, the relationship between a son and, and his father. And uh, I've just, I love this movie so much and I usually watch it around Christmas, but I just totally spaced on it uh, this season. And so I, I was happy to see, you know, pop up on Netflix and yeah, I, I just can't say enough about how much uh, I love this movie. I've seen it, probably i mean almost as much as i've seen um you know some of the spielberg's other movies that i watched not obviously probably not as much as you know in, in indiana jones or something like that but it's one that i just i i never get sick of and i can i can always just get caught up in it every single time i watch it chris where, where i know you probably you've done a whole podcast on this potentially where do you stand on catch me if you can oh it's great it's definitely like one of my favorite spielberg movies and one of his best of you know of this of the 21st century it's just so good it's so uh, it's 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 weird because on the surface it's this very light and fluffy and bubbly movie but it's all it's actually like very sad and melancholy and it's just yeah. it's it's so well done and everyone in it is so good christopher walken is so fucking good in this as as his, uh leonardo DiCaprio's father so yeah it's great uh i was just looking up and and i'm gonna uh, put this link in our uh in the show notes of this episode but chris uh you did you know obviously your whole 21st century spielberg podcast but you also did an article that i don't think we mentioned on the podcast where you ranked uh the, the whole you know 21st century filmography from worst to best so um i will put that in there and people can see where catch me if you can falls on that list uh okay so who else uh, who's next oh chris you uh what have you been watching uh, I watched uh, Capricorn One, which is on um, HBO Max, and uh, this movie is—it's about uh, a mission to Mars. It's a proposed mission to Mars, but at the last minute, all the astronauts are are told to get off the spaceship, the whatever you want to call it, the rocket, and the ship still goes to Mars. And st- but as it turns out, there was some sort of flaw in the uh, the life support, and they caught it at the last minute. And uh, they pulled the the astronauts off because they wouldn't survive. But at the same time, NASA is really hesitant to announce that because they don't want the government to shut the space program down. So rather than admit they made a mistake, they fake this entire thing where, you know, the mission still goes to Mars. However, it backfires because when the when the ship is coming back to Earth, the heat shield breaks and then the ship explodes. And the problem with that is. Uh, they can't, you know, they can't reveal, oh, all the astronauts are still alive and on Earth because we covered this up. So they decide to kill off the astronauts, which leads the astronauts to, you know, run and try and make an escape. And at the same time, all this is unfolding. There's a completely separate storyline about 
a journalist played by Elliot Gould, who is just always great and everything, uh, who's, who's, who uh, gets clued into the true story and, and tries to, to blow the lid off of everything. And this movie is so much fun. I, I just never seen it. I, you know, I've, I've heard about it for years and I just saw it was on HBO Max and I said, you know what, I'm going to watch this. And it's, it's surprisingly like funny, even though it's like a paranoid thriller, it's, it's a legitimately funny movie. And there are also surprisingly great action scenes in this. Um, there's, there's a scene at the end where helicopters are chasing uh, one of the astronauts who's in a, like a crop duster. And it was, it, it was done mostly practically with like real helicopters and, and a real plane and some model work, but it just looks so fucking cool. Like there's this one shot where the crop duster like dives into this open Canyon and they did this for real. And it like took my breath away. Cause I'm so used to seeing that stuff done digitally right now. And I was actually reading that some people who worked on the film were like, that was the most dangerous movie I've ever worked on. Cause they, they really made us dive bomb into canyons and stuff like that. And wow. you know, people could have been killed. And so, but um, it's just, it's a lot of, it's, it's just a very entertaining movie. It's not like, you know, I would call it a great movie, but it, it's, it gets the job done if you're looking for something fun and entertaining. And also OJ Simpson is in it before he became a murderer. He plays one of the, <laughs> he plays one of the astronauts. So, oh man. Um, uh, that, that was something I was going to say about Thief too, Chris. You just reminded me, like the idea of uh, of something looking and feeling not safe. There's a moment in Thief where uh, James Conn's character uh, pours gasoline on a car and lights it, and it, it you know fire goes back, and I think the car blows up. And he is like, he does it. Uh, it's filmed all in one shot, and he seems really close to these open flames that are happening in in such a way where like just watching it made me. Uh, have that same feeling you're talking about that like oh my god like this is it, it just it it makes your heart beat faster knowing that they were really doing this and you know us now being trained to watch movies in a whole different way and and know when something is obviously fake it just is like a, a shock to the system when you see something actually real so that's, that's pretty cool yeah it's like a, it's a weird trade-off because like at the same time it's like i don't want actors to have to die for their right. work but when you watch like older movies where there there's a lot of effects work and it's all done practically it's just there's just something extra special about that it's just it's tangible it feels like it's really there like and you know that that's been lost now and i understand why it's been lost because again it's it's safer to have a digital plane diving into a digital canyon but man sometimes <laughs> I want to see stuntmen needlessly risking their life for my entertainment. Yes. Uh, all right. What else have you been watching? Chris? Uh, I watched after hours, which is also on um, HBO max. And this is a Martin Scorsese movie. And even though Martin Scorsese is my, my like favorite filmmaker, I had just never seen this. And I saw it was on HBO max. And I also saw it was leaving HBO max at the end of the month. So I was like, Oh fuck, I better watch this. Cause um, this is on DVD, but it has yet to have uh, a Blu-ray release. There's been rumors of a Criterion Blu-ray for a few years now, but it's just not happened yet. So I just finally watched it. And man, this is so freaking good. This is like one of my favorite Mars Corsese movies now. And I'm kicking myself for waiting for so long to watch it. But um, it starts Griffin Dunn, who people might remember from uh, American Werewolf in London. He's the he's the friend who dies in the beginning and comes back as a as a, uh, a corpse for the rest of the film. Um, and he plays this, this uh, guy who works as a uh, data entry clerk. He works this like mindless job. And uh, one night he's in a coffee shop and he meets this woman played by um, uh, Rosanna Arquette. And, you know, they hit it off and he, he ends up getting invited back to her 
uh, apartment in Soho that she shares with her roommate. And when he gets there, you know, obviously he's going there to like, you know, have sex. That's what he's he wants to be there for. But when he gets there, both her and her roommate are just acting like very, very strange. Like they're not acting normal. And it, it gets so weird that he literally like runs out into the night. And as, you know, a series of unfortunate events would happen, he has no money to get back home to, for the train back home. And it's raining. And he, so he doesn't want to walk back to his, his apartment. So it just has him going from like one location to a next trying to get home. And he just keeps getting into increasingly bizarre Kafka-esque situations. And it gets to a point where like everyone in the neighborhood is like chasing him down to kill him because they think he's a burglar who's been robbing apartments. And it's just, it's so like like, a John wick scenario where like the entire city seems to turn on this person. It's kind of like that, but instead of like him being like a capable assassin, he's just like some loser guy. So he just keeps like getting more and more frazzled and injured. And, but it's, it's so weird and funny and it's got all those Scorsese tricks where, you know, he Scorsese, one of his, his things is, is the dolly zoom where, uh, he puts a camera on a dolly. He zooms in really fast into people's faces. Like I guess the most famous example is is Goodfellas, where uh, Ray Liotta is doing cocaine and the camera like crashes in on his face. And there's like a million of those in this, and it works every time. And it's just it's just a really fun movie, and it's just very strange. And like I said, I'm, I'm kicking myself for not having watched this sooner, but I'm I'm glad I finally did. So if you like me have yet to see this and want to see it. Watch it now because I think it leaves HBO Max on the 31st. And that is called After Hours. Uh, what else, Chris? Uh, I also watched a documentary called Pizza, A Love Story. Um, uh, every Friday in my house is is pizza night. We usually make like a, a pizza from the supermarket. And while we were eating our pizza last Friday, my wife was like, man, I wonder if there's a documentary about pizza. And I was like, I bet there is. And I looked it up. And sure enough, I found this, which was on Amazon Prime. And boy, is this bad. I, I, wish, I wish I had found a better documentary. Uh, on the surface, it's a cool idea because it's about three specific pizza places in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. And New Haven, Connecticut is kind of like, uh, obviously not the birthplace of pizza, but it's the birthplace of sort of like American pizza as we know it. Like these, these uh, really it was like one place and it, it blossomed to three that sort of like started selling pizza as we know it today. And the first like 20 minutes of the movie are about that. They're about uh, Italian immigrants coming to Connecticut to work in this factory and opening up pizza places. And uh, at first I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And then after they get done all of that history, it just turns into like scene after scene of random people eating pizza from these places. And they're just like, this pizza is good. And that's, that's really it. I was like, this fucking sucks, man. And it's just- <laughs> And it, it gets to a point where like <laughs> it gets to a point where they they like have like 30 minutes where they're just listing famous people who ate at these pizzas. Like Bill Clinton came here, Steven Spielberg came here. And I was like, I don't I don't fucking care about any of this. Like I just I wanted to learn about pizza. I don't and like there's all these random I guess they're like YouTube influencers. I don't know who they are, but there's people like it'll cut to like two guys in a car filming themselves with a phone eating pizza and then a title card will come on the screen. It'll be like, I don't don't remember their names. It's like Bob and Ray gave this pizza a 10 out of 10. I'm like, what? Who cares about any of this? I just want to, I just wanted to learn the history of pizza. I don't give a shit about any of this. So I cannot recommend 
Pizza, a love story streaming on Amazon Prime. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> and finally, uh, another sh- another thing on HBO Max is 30 Coins, uh, which is a, a show that's it's uh, it's arriving weekly. So not all the episodes are available yet. Only four of the eight episodes are available. There's new episodes every Monday. And I had seen a few people talking about this and I finally just gave it and watched it. And this is great. This is a, uh, it's a, it's a Spanish horror series and it's really over the top and it's really gory and it's really weird. And uh, it just, it pushes all my buttons. Um, it's set in this like small little village and uh, basically a bunch of creepy unexplained paranormal stuff plagues this village. The minute this, this priest shows up in town and it turns out the priest is this disgraced figure who was involved in an exorcism that got someone killed a few years ago. And I should also point out the priest is like really muscular and he's got like an armory full of guns. Like he's the punisher and uh, there's, there are demons and there are ghosts and there's a, a scene where a cow gives birth to a human baby. And then the human baby turns into a giant spider. It's just really, it's, it's just really over the top. And it's exactly what I was looking for. Uh, the opening credits are a recreation of Jesus's crucifixion. And they're like, over the top gory where like blood is like flying in slow motion off of Jesus's face. And (laughs) all the Roman soldiers have like demon eyes. It's, it's really not subtle in the least. And that's exactly what I was looking for. So if you're looking for a bombastic, really well-made horror, I I can't recommend 30 coins enough on uh, HBO max. Wow. Okay. Uh, AC, what have you been watching? Uh, I've been watching a couple things. So in preparation for my panel last week, I watched one of the film by uh, Leon Lei, uh, which is called Song Lan. And uh, it's a 2018 LGBT romance between a debt collector and a Kai Luong, which is a Vietnamese opera performer in 1980 Saigon. And I went into this not really expecting much. I hadn't really heard of it until I went in to moderate the panel. And um, I feel like it kind of came and went in 2018. But I was really pleasantly surprised by what a gem of a movie uh, Song Lang is. So it follows this debt collector who um, is really good at his job. He uh, is mostly just tussles people and um, threatens them for to for money. And but he has a sort of sad past in which both of his, his parents were Gai Lung performers. But being performers sort of bankrupt them, especially as the government became uh, more uh, communist. Um, so he um, essentially goes into debt collecting, but has like, and then sort of as he is collecting from this Kai, Kai Leung, um, like company, he strikes up this really intense and intimate con- connection with one of the performers. And uh, it's just this really quiet a uh, really lyrical film that follows their relationship mostly over the course of one night. And uh, it's it's really, really gorgeous. Uh, and I probably my favorite Vietnamese film that I've seen so far. And the Vietnamese film industry is one that's still really much in its infancy. I think the only other film that I've seen from the Vietnamese film uh, market is uh, Fury, which stars Veronica No. You might have heard of it. I talked about it a long, long, long time ago, and it's basically taken uh, with a mother instead. And Veronica No is the actress from Star Wars The Last Jedi who uh, dies at the beginning. She plays uh, 
Rose's sister, and she's so great in Fury. She like just um is completely uh, magnetic and real and uh, a really talented fighter. She's, like great screen presence. Uh, she also produces Song Lang. She's a very um, accomplished producer in Vietnam. She oh for other people who uh, might know her from The Five Blood, she appears as Hanoi Hannah. Um, but yeah, she put her production powers behind Song Lang for good reason because it's a very very beautiful film. Uh, Leon Lay comes from the photography world and you can really tell each shot is really artfully composed and gorgeous. And um, it being an LGBT romance set in the 80s, it would be easy to sort of write this off or explain it simply as like, call me by your name, but a more grimy Southeast Asian version of it. And to an extent it is, but I feel like that would be dismissive to just say that's what it is. Um, it's really beautiful and a, a really pleasant surprise. It's not streaming anywhere, but it is on VOD. Um, it was made re- recently available on VOD in the States, and I highly, highly recommend checking it out. And that's Songlang, uh, spelled S-O-N-G space L-A-N-G. Cool. What else? The next film I watched, uh, or was it a film? Hold on. I'm checking my list of stuff. <laughs> it wasn't a film. It was a TV series. Uh, it's the French TV series Lupin, or if you want to be fancy, Lupin. <laughs> and um, we've talked about Arsène Lupin quite a bit on this podcast. Uh, Lupin the Third, the, ca- the Castle of Cagliostro, was famously Hayao Miyazaki's debut film, and that took a character that was already quite famous in Japan, uh, a manga character created by Monkey Punch, who had several anime series and uh, films before then. Before then. But Lupin the Third, Castle Cagliostro is probably his most famous appearance in the West. But that Lupin is actually based off of a uh, character uh, created by a French novelist that I have here, um, and it's You're Maurice. Not vamping at all. <laughs> Maurice Leblanc. Uh, it was created by Maurice Leblanc in 1905, and um, he actually that character actually has quite a standing in France as. From what I can see, he would go on to inspire a series of crime films through the 1940s, one of which I think Ben has seen. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's appeared in mostly novels, I think uh, several of some TV shows as well. Um, but uh, I probably would compare him to being like in terms of famous pop culture characters in the West, like the Sherlock Holmes of France, maybe. That's just me basing it on from what I see and what I've read on the Wikipedia page and from what I've seen in this TV series, uh, which is a modern spin on Lupin. It not, it's not actually featuring the character created by Maurice Leblanc or the character created by Monkey Punch, uh, but a new character played by Omar Sy, who uh, has starred in a couple of Hollywood films, but is best known for his role in the Intouchables, or if you want to get fancy, Les Intouchables. <laughs> um, he plays a character named Asan Diop, who is a son of a Senegalese immigrant um, whose father gets wrongfully accused of stealing a necklace from a wealthy family for, for, for whom he works. And um, his father gets imprisoned and commits suicide while in prison. And Asan decides to um, uh, dedicate his life to crime after his father gifts him a book of Arsène Lupin, the uh, gentleman thief character who is very well known in France from what I can gather. And uh, he basically bases his heists off of heists 
that feature in this fictional character's uh, escapade, escapades. And um, in each episode, there is a new escapade. And uh, at the end of each, he finds a clue as to who helped wrong, wrongfully convict and frame his father. And uh, it's a really fun, really nimble and frothy uh, caper series. I think it's only about five episodes uh, long. And uh, it's, it's just like a breeze to watch. Completely enjoyable because uh, of Omar Sy's uh, intensely charismatic performance. I remember being really impressed by him when I saw The Intouchables. And I've been kind of waiting for Hollywood to find out a way to use him right. And I feel like he's always been kind of in a lot of supporting roles. I think he was in a Jurassic movie. I can't remember. Um, yeah, and he played like Bishop in X-Men Days of Future Past, yeah. which is like a nothing role. So it, it, he just hasn't had the opportunity to really like make much of a mark in Hollywood yeah, so Yeah, which is unfortunate because he's so charismatic and so magnetic. And he gets to show that off in Lupin where he wears many hats, uh, metaphorical and literal. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a really, really fun uh, TV series, a fast binge on Netflix. I think it was Netflix's first like surprise hit of the year uh it was the first french series to appear on the top 10 in the u.s like uh, on netflix's homepage, uh which was really exciting so um it's definitely like kind of become a, a sleeper hit and for good reason because it's just a lot of fun and i i highly recommend it so that's lupin lupin uh streaming now on netflix uh the next thing i watched is another uh netflix excuse me surprise hit uh, series, which is Alice in Borderland. It is a somewhat, I don't want to say dystopian. It's a thriller Japanese series based on a manga uh, about this trio of friends who are kind of like these gadabout characters uh, who kind of waste their their time like going to bars, goofing off, uh, causing traffic incidences in the middle of Shibuya Crossing. And one day as they're sort of evading like police after causing one of these mishaps, uh, they're hiding in a bathroom stall and suddenly all the lights go out and they emerge to find Tokyo completely empty. Uh, there's no one in sight. It seems like days have passed because the cars are empty, food is rotten, they don't know what's happened. And later that night, uh, the lights in a few buildings light up and they're directed to a game uh, center in which they must uh, sort of solve this game, uh, beat this game, uh, or die. <laughs> so they're basically set up in this world where there are no other people except for a few, a few others who have been trapped in this world as well um, and who are all participants in this uh sociopathic game uh, in which they must survive or die. Some of them are puzzles. Some of them are feats of strength. Some of them are chases. And um, it's basically like the Saw movies meets Battle Royale. It's really addicting, very dark, and um, very violent. Uh, a lot of people's heads getting blown off by collars. So that's, that's where the Battle Royale thing comes in. And people getting shot to high heaven, a lot of blood splatter going on in this series, but it's really, really um, addicting and engrossing. And um, it's, it reminds me, uh, it, I make comparisons to the Saw franchise, which I actually haven't seen. So, but that's what I know of the Saw franchise. It's about puzzles and psychological torture and that kind of thing. Um, but it reminds me a little bit more of um, 
this J drama I watched a while ago, I think it was like 2007, called Liar Game, also based off a manga. And I'm going to dive a little bit into my J drama phase back when I used to watch them a lot. And it made me think of basically one of those J dramas, which was all about the intellect uh, of a character who, which comes in at like the third act and they have a, a surprising perceptiveness in which they can do sort of Sherlock style um, uh, sequence in which they suddenly solve this thing. And uh, it's a lot of fun and witty and done in a way that's very like uh, quick and slap, not slapdash, but quick and, and, uh, and um, rapid. And um, it reminds me of Liar Game, but with a better budget and uh, slightly more like mainstream acting Liar Game, uh, very much leaned into its manga slash anime roots in that it was insanely overacted. And uh very hammy, but in a way that I, you know, I bought, and it was kind of fun because that felt like in line with the anime. But there's also like this this thread of social criticism in um, Alice in, Border- in Borderland because it deals somewhat with like social stratas and classes, uh, which also sort of remind me of more uh, great Japanese dramas from like the early 2000s and and, min- and late 90s that felt like they dealt with that kind of social realism uh, in a way that I really enjoyed. I'm gonna. For- I don't know if anyone knows these, but like none of you guys know them back when, but there's like this great drama called Ikebukuro Westgate Park, which starred Ken Watanabe. Um, and also, if you ever saw Blade of the Immortal, Takuya Kimura was the main character in that. It kind of gave me shades of that, that seedy underbelly element. Um, so that all kind of comes together in Alice in Borderland. Um, not a really great title for this show. I feel like it's a little... Um, it doesn't really convey uh, how good of and how interesting of a show this is. But um, I, I also highly recommend it that's streaming on Netflix now. Cool. What else have you been watching, Aishi? I've been watching other things, including Ride Your Wave. This is an anime film that recently hit um, HBO Max. It is directed by Masaki Yuasa. I think I've talked about his film before. I'm not a huge fan of his. Um, I think his animation style is really interesting and exciting um but his stories sometimes especially like in his earlier work where he would push the envelope a lot they were not really to my taste they were like almost like a little bit vulgar uh but he had he's the he's the creator of devilman crybaby uh if you guys know which is a really big hit i haven't seen it um but his more recent works uh like japan sinks 2020 uh was really good that was also on netflix um and that I felt like was a little bit more grounded uh, and um, compelling than other past things I've seen. So Ride Your Wave is his 2019 film, which uh, is basically this coming of age romance uh, about a surfer girl who falls in love with this firefighter and they live on like the sunny Japanese island and um, they he dies in an accident and she is somehow able to see his ghost when she sings this song that they shared Um near bodies of water and he like appears in this body of water and she's able to interact with it and like the he is able to control the water to like move and stuff uh and uh it's sweet a little weird um i and it's it's fun though but i i did make the mistake of watching this in the english dub and uh on hbo max too it has for some reason the hard subtitles burn into the into the actual like film so the hard subtitles came from like the Japanese uh, dubbed audio and you can't take it off for some reason. I think this is definitely something they need to fix with HBO Max because I 
feel like this is a problem that they've encountered with other past anime films that they haven't fixed. Um, but that one is um, the, but yeah, the English dub is very grating. The voice actress who plays the lead character is just, I don't know who it is, but she had a really grating voice and that kind of ruined for me because a lot of it um, take the, uh, a lot of the movie uh, encompasses her singing. And I was like, oh, wow, she's singing again. Great. Um, but yeah, Ride Your Wave is a sweet film that you can watch on HBO Max now. All right. And then one more thing, right? Last film. I watched a an Indian classic film named Awara. So this somewhat is... Um, this is a cor- somewhat of a cornerstone in um, Indian cinema and Bollywood cinema. And this was uh, inspired by me look- like browsing Criterion Channel and finding these three by Raj Kapoor collection that they are recently featuring. And Raj Kapoor is considered one of the, um, again, like uh, stalwarts of Indian cinema. He has been compared to sort of the Charlie Chaplin of India. And Awara, which is, I think, one of his most famous films from 1951, um, is very much inspired by The Tramp from Chaplin, for example. And it feels sort of like The Tramp meets Charles Dickens in a way. It follows this uh, young man who was born into poverty and uh, basically becomes a, a career criminal and um, but falls in love with his childhood friend who he meets again as an adult and through her he meets the judge who he finds out is actually his real father and this judge is someone who believes that anyone who is born into a a family of criminals will become a criminal anyone who's born into a a good wealthy family will be will stay wealthy it's very like old-fashioned very caste-based ideas and um this the character played by Raj Kapoor gets accused of uh, murder, and there's like this big courtroom trial where all these things come to light. Uh, it's a really uh, lengthy film; it's about two and a half hours, but it uh, really warrants it because it's it's one long uh, like saga, and uh, the way that it manages to merge social realism with melodrama with uh, bits of social critique uh, is really impressive. And um, also, you know, it's musicals too, because it's a Bollywood film. And I actually was wondering, I didn't, I wasn't able to look into this, but I was wondering like how far back the musical um, roots take place in Bollywood, because I know it's, it's very uh, like connected to the musical, but I wasn't sure like when that musical element started to become popularized. And it (laughs) seems already like in 1951, it was already like a, a facet like a an accepted facet of Bollywood mm-hmm. cinema like they already had like a handle on um on how to stage these and how and like it was very excellently filmed and how to perform these and so I was wondering like when like the musical element of Bollywood actually like started whether it was always around because maybe musicals were a part of uh Indian culture and um uh yeah Indian culture from the to begin with so I don't know if you do know. If anybody knows, yeah, yeah, yeah. send us an email. I, I'm curious to learn. I don't really know much. Uh, I don't know enough about Indian cinema, and I would love to learn more. And uh, what I've seen thus far, like, like my various divings in into Bollywood and Indian cinema, I really enjoyed. So if you guys also have other uh, Indian Bollywood classics to recommend, please do. Cool. Uh, all right. I think that's it for what we've been watching. Let's go into the what we've been eating segment. Brad, what have you been eating recently? bunch of junk of course 
Um, so uh, for, at Christmas, uh, and I just hadn't gotten around to trying these yet, there were new Fruit Loops candy canes. And they're really good. Um, I was surprised like, like that they actually were able to get the um, you know, the cereal flavor uh, perfectly with, with the, the candy canes. I'm not sure if it's mostly the frosting that does the work or if they were just able to take like the formula for the cereal and just, you know, mold it into, uh, you know, the, the, the candy material for candy canes. But um, they're they're really good. It's, you know, I, I it's basically just like, you know, sucking on the cereal without getting without it getting soggy. Um, and so, yeah, if, if you're if you like candy canes, I'm not, I'm not sure if you're able to find these anymore now that Christmas is over. Maybe you'll find them like on, I don't know, eBay or like uh a black market somewhere that sells candy canes. <laughs> I'd love to go to that black market candy cane spot. <laughs> um, but they're 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 really good. I, I enjoy them. So if you can find them, give and you like Fruit Loops, give give them a whirl. Um, so uh, uh, obviously everybody loves the Popeyes chicken sandwich. It's delicious. It's wonderful. Now they have something else that's that's awesome. Uh, they have chocolate beignets. Um, if you don't know, beignets are pretty famous in New Orleans. They're basically this like fried pastry that has powdered sugar on it, and uh, these are filled with with chocolate. And so, um, if you get them, you know, warm from from Popeyes, they are just like so so delectable. The chocolate inside is uh, very melty and smooth, and the powdered sugar um, only you know enhances just how how delicious they are. And uh, you know, for being fast food beignets, they they have a, a good taste to them as well. I, I suppose you know it's not. Uh, super hard to to fry uh, stuff up like this when you're already frying chicken and fries, but uh, these are really good, and so and those are available at all uh, Popeyes chicken locations. Um, nice, yeah. So check those out. I also got a new Dunkaroos cereal. Uh, if you know Dunkaroos, then you know like that they're you know the standard is their little cookie containers that you dip in frosting. They just recently came back last year. And they uh, they've only brought back one flavor variation so far, um, and it's the the white frosting with the re- regular cookies um, with and it has like sprinkles in it, so it's kind of like the, their birthday cake variant, I guess. And that's essentially what the Dunkaroo cereal is. It's like uh, very similar to Cookie Crisp, it ha- except it seems like it's uh, loaded with um, not really sprinkles, but like whatever the sprinkles like substituted that they're able to put in cereal without it just being sprinkles that you would normally put on cupcake me like that. And it's kind of like, it's almost like, um, that at one time I want to say, I'm pretty sure that there was a, um, a sugar cookie, sugar cookie crisp cereal. And this is essentially roughly, um, about the same as that. Uh, I was kind of hoping that there would be something that brought the froster frosting flavor into the equation. Like what maybe they made the cereal, pieces frosted and it still had the cookie flavor um, from the Dunkaroos cookies but uh, so I was a little bit disappointed in that aspect but they're still uh, pretty good not as good as like the sugar cookie toast crunch which comes out around the holidays but uh, it was uh, I would say solid a solid B plus cereal okay (laughs) and then uh, I got a Keurig for Christmas so I am now uh, trying a bunch of different coffee creamers Uh, it's like it's gonna you're gonna hear a lot about coffee creamers in the coming months uh because i i needed to find a basically just needed to make coffee more available to me and have it be less expensive because i was constantly buying um iced coffee like in a carton or i would get like the big starbucks energy drink coffees and they're just too expensive for the individual serving and so 
saving a lot of money by having a Keurig and buying the K-Cups, which I will also be diving into a bunch of different coffee flavors. Uh, Jacob specifically has asked me to make sure that I try as many different coffees as possible for for his benefit uh, so he can live vicariously through me, I guess. Um, but I've started with just coffee creamers. And so, so far, I've tried a, a Cinnamon Toast Crunch coffee creamer, um, which is pretty good. The coffee that I have right now is it's just a, a, ba- um, a basic Seattle's best breakfast brew, uh, so nothing fancy there. And uh, it's uh, basically tastes like if you had, you know, a, a Cinnamon Toast Crunch milk, you know, or like a, a rum, the rum chata, uh, alcohol, obviously without the kick, but, uh, yeah, that's, it's, it adds a good flavor to the coffee. And then I also have, uh, a Cinnabon flavored coffee creamer, uh, which brings the, the frosting, the cream cheese frosting flavor, um, into, uh, into the coffee, which is also good. It's, I'm, I'm happy that it's not, um, sickeningly sweet, you know, obviously you'd probably have to add a decent amount of creamer for it to be overpowering. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, you know, it's a good place to start. And I, um, I, I recently found some other ones I, I will try once I get through the, the first two uh, creamers that I bought. But I'm, I'm excited and addicted to my new coffee situation. Awesome. Well, yeah, if you guys have uh, recommendations for Brad in the coffee department uh, or uh, recommendations for HT in terms of Indi- uh, Indian cinema or, or Bollywood films, uh, you can send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com, as well as those uh, recommendations. We would love to hear them. Uh, make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. I think that's going to bring us to the end of this uh, of today's episode of the show. Uh, be sure to check out the show notes for HT's panel and the uh, Chris's article about the 21st century Spielberg entries ranked. And of course, visit slashfilm.com because that's where you can find all sorts of stuff that we're writing about all the time. So I encourage everybody to go to that site uh, as often as possible and read everything that we're writing because we're all very important. Um, So you can, uh, yeah, rate and review the podcast on iTunes if you would like to do that. You can tell your friends to spread the word about the show. Thank you for listening. And we will talk to you all tomorrow. Uh, Ben, should I break out the book today? You know, Jacob. Uh... Oh, the answer is yes. Okay, the Gantrin book with <laughs> sharper torch for posts, cost equips, input put downs by Louis A. Safian. Open to page forty-one. The crabs section. Crabs. <clears throat> ben, Ben. The way Ben barks at you, you'd think you were his old father or mother. <laughs> okay. Brad, Brad. He's always sticking his nose in other people's business. Like N O S. He's always f- sticking his yeah. nose in other people's business. Uh-huh. What does this do with crabs? I don't understand. Like he, you're you're an angry person, like a grumpy person, like not little crab though. Creatures, <laughs> like you're you're a negative you're a crabby. Person. You're a yeah. crabby person. Crabby. Sure. Well, Ht, she won't even listen to both sides of a photograph record. Ah. Uh. Chris, Chris, he's always as sore as a porcupine with ingrown quills. Oh, that does sound painful. Oh, I, think I love the use of sore as like a like a 1930s term. Man, Louis A. Stephen just digging back in. Well, when I want your opinion, I give it to you. I insulted myself. <laughs> <laughs> 
Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER and partnership with MGM Northfield Park.